special privilege of Jim. So Jim, uh, come on up here. Uh, you, can, you can clap. Yeah, a lot of... So... Nope, still going. Uh, so Jim and Joe have been coming to our location here for about uh, a little... Uh, Okay, it's on, but it's echo. There you go. And I'll try to speak loudly. That is not my strong suit. Good morning, Park Church. It is a joy and a ple pleasure uh, and an honor to be here today to open the word of the Lord for you today. I thank you, Noah, for your um, words of introduction, so I won't, bore, bore, bar, I won't bore you anymore with any more details. I did want to point out, though, before we get started, that I think what you're witnessing this morning is a little bit of pastoral hazing. Um, so as Noah's deciding which one of the great stories I was going to preach on, he's like, which, which one should I give the new guy? And he's going, I got it. We're going to give him the one where God is not even mentioned in the book. And we'll see how he does with it. So we will see indeed. Our text for today comes from Esther chapter 4, verses 10 through chapter 5, verse 3. So if you don't have a Bible, there are some available in the, by the welcome table in the back your devices, anything, it works for me. Um, if you're not familiar, Esther is in, if you kind of open your Bible to the middle and, and just kind of flip forward to, uh, to the front of the book a couple pages, you'll bump into Esther there. So Esther chapter 4 verses 10 uh, through verse, uh, chapter 5 verse 3. Let me go ahead and read that for you. Then Esther spoke to Hatach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for a, such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And my young women and I will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. 
And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. So our text uh, finds us in the middle of an ancient near Middle Eastern narrative. It's kind of confusing if you don't know the story. We kind of jumped right into the middle of it. It would be similar if we jumped into the middle of Hensel and Gretel, the story. We probably also kind of remember that story, like you kind of remember the story of Esther, um, and, but you don't remember the details necessarily. Some of you who are, who are raising kids right now might actually know the, the details of this story. Let me just give you an example uh, as we jump into the story of Hensel and Gretel. The next morning, when the sun rose, Gretel turned to her little brother. Hensel, she said, we cannot stay here. We must escape now, today, into the woods. Surely we will find more to eat when we are on our own than what we get here at home. Do you think, said Hansel, but what if we get lost? We won't, said Gretel. I will take bread. We will drop breadcrumbs behind us. If we have to, we can follow the crumbs back home. And so the two of them went off into the woods and left their hard life behind. Now, if you don't remember the story, you don't know why, why do they have to run away from home. Do you remember what actually happened when they did run home? Do you remember if they needed to rely on those breadcrumbs to get back home? Or the, did the ravens eat those crumbs? It's a similar to, to a situation for us with Esther. At least it was for me. It's like um, we jump in. Who is Esther? Who is Mordecai? This conversation between the two and where did it come from? So I want to get you caught up a little bit on the story. We do have to take some time to look at the broader story of Esther and not just our text today. So our text um, will teach us three things today. God is always at work, and then fasting prepares our hearts for God's work, and God's work demands sacrifice from us. And with that in mind, let me get you caught up with the story of Esther up to the point of, of our text. So the story of Esther begins in the Persian, uh, uh, in the empire, the Persian Empire under King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, as the history books um, call him. Uh, over a hundred years before his reign, the Jews were brought up out of Israel, out of Jerusalem, and into exile under, under the Babylonian Empire. Well, the Babylonian Empire didn't last very long either. They collapsed under uh, the control of the Persian Empire. So the Persian um, kings took, took over, and one of the kings, King Cyrus, about 40 or 50 years after the Jews were brought out of Israel, he decided to let some of them move back to Israel, back to the Promised Land. Um, and there they began to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. They re rebuilt the temple, and they rebuilt the wall at that point. Not all Jewish people moved back to the Promised Land. If you remember, if you think about it, 40, 50 years, that's another generation. A lot of people were born in exile, and they didn't know much about their homeland, and so many of them stayed for various reasons. And we know that Esther and Mordecai are in the Persian kingdom, in the capital of Susa at this time of our story. The story of Esther begins in chapter 1, and, in, and there we see King Ahasuerus hosting a huge feast among his, for his armies, his nobles, his governors of the provinces from his vast empire. The feast was lasted for seven days. 
It was meant to show off his unbelievable wealth. The setting for the feast was luxurious and dripping with excess. They were drinking from golden goblets. On the seventh day, of the, as the scriptures say, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he called for his queen Vashti to come and, and so that the king could show off her beauty among, uh, you know, to, to, to the fellow rulers. Now, Queen Vashti refused to be objectified in this way and did not obey the king's request. This infuriated the king to such a, a, a degree that he, he, um, he stripped Queen Vashti of her royal status and she was never to enter his presence again. Now, he needed a new queen. So off, uh, the eunuchs went off into the empire looking for the most beautiful women as possible queens for the future. Esther a Jewish woman whose Hebrew name was Hadassah, was one of the women to be selected to to be presented to the king. At that time, she did not make it known to the king's eunuchs that she was Jewish. Mordecai, her relative, uh, raised her up and always kept watch over her, especially now as she was going through the beautification process. Apparently, she did not need much, very much help in the beautification process since her beauty seemed to rise above and beyond all the other women in the land. And sure enough, when she was presented to the king, he found favor in her and he made her her new queen. In the meantime, Mordecai was staying close. He was kicking around in the palace, always watching out for, for Esther. And at one point, he overheard a couple of the king's guards um, plotting to kill the king. So Mordecai got word quickly to Esther, and, and Esther got word to the king, and the, the, the conspirators were hung on the gallows, and the incident was recorded in the king's book of Chronicles. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Haman enters the scene. Haman is the bad guy of this, this narrative. Haman, who was of Canaanite descent, found favor with the king and rose to power above all other governors and rulers. Haman was so, uh, so proud that he decided to have a decree um, made that everyone should bow to him when, he, when, when they were in his presence. Of course, Mordecai refused to bow to Haman, and this infuriated Haman extremely. So Haman found out that Mordecai was Jewish, and so he decided to eradicate all Jews from the empire. Haman worked out a deal with the king that allowed him to send a decree into the empire sealed with the king's ring, and, it said, and the decree instructed the people to do the following. In verse 313 of, of uh, Esther, it says, To destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar and to plunder their goods. This was a bloody call for total genocide of the Jewish people in the vast Persian Empire. When Mordecai heard of the decree, he sent a messenger with a copy of the decree to Esther, instructing her to approach the king and plead for the lives of their people. And that brings us to our text today. So in verse 11 of our text, Esther was responding to that that uh, request from Mordecai and she basically said if I do this there is only one law and that is to put me to death if I approach the king uninvited (laughs) and Mordecai in verse 13 was undeterred and responded with the first lesson of our text today God is always at work often invisible 
behind the scenes to save his people. Let me read his response in verse 13 again. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, whether Mordecai believed it explicitly, intuitively, or by his tradition, he was essentially telling Esther that God himself will raise up someone else to protect his people if she did not do what she needed to do that day. God has protected his people for many years, for thousands of years. God raised up Moses to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt and bring them into the promised land. God selected Joshua to enter into the promised land and take it city by city. God anointed David as king of of his people to shape them into a nation where God dwelled among them. Even when his people rebelled against him, split the kingdom in two, and worshipped other gods, God did not abandon his people. And he continued to send his prophets to warn them, to encourage them, to call them to repentance and obedience. Even when God allowed wicked empires to carry the Jews into exile, God did not abandon his people. He raised up Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah to continue to remind his people who their God was and that he had not abandoned them. So Mordecai was correct when he said to Esther, Don't think you will escape death if you do not speak on behalf of the Jews across this empire. But even if you do not, God will raise up someone else to speak out on on the behalf of his people. Mordecai continued in his words to Esther outside, continued in his words to Esther, consider that you are in this place and time for the very purpose of fighting for the lives of his people. Brothers and sisters, God has a plan to save his people. That plan did not end with Esther. That plan continues on through history. As long as humanity still draws breath on earth, the plan still stands. In the words of the great poet, the times they are changing, but God has not changed in all of history. God continues to love his people and and has a plan to save his people, and you are part of that plan. He calls the church to go out and make disciples. And who knows whether you have been placed in this city, in this neighborhood, in this church body at this time to help save God's people. Who knows whether God gave you your gifts for this very purpose today in this place. Who knows, maybe God blessed you financially so that you might help fund the ministry of this local church body or funding missionaries as they carry the gospel message to all ends of the world or to serve the physical needs of the underprivileged in the name of Jesus, right here in this neighborhood. How can you use your gifts and opportunity to help carry out God's plan? Who knows? Maybe you have the gift of friendship to give to someone in this very neighborhood who needs your love and care. Who knows? Maybe God gave you the gift of fighting for justice alongside of those who are suffering from injustice. Who knows? Maybe it is representing God's truth in your academic field or at the office that you work in. God knows, 
because he is at work and you have a part in that work. Let me give you a recent example of that, that uh, just in time, in the right place, in the right, uh, right time. Uh, my sister Debbie and her, and her husband Greg, um, they moved to Odessa in Ukraine about 30 years ago. They lived there for 10 years. They learned the Russian language because that's what Odessan uh, speak. And he taught at a seminary at the time for about 10 years. He was discipling young men who wanted to become pastors, who then grew up and went out and became pastors around the country. After 10 years, the seminary where he taught, they moved uh, back to Prague. They moved to Prague, and now the the seminary was there. My brother-in-law continued to teach there, and my sister looked for opportunities for ministry, and so she started engaging in refugee ministry. At the time, it was the refugees that were pouring through, through Europe, coming out of Syria. Um, but fast forward to last year, last spring, Ukrainians were fleeing the war and were pouring into Prague by the thousands. Debbie and Greg had the opportunity to spring into action and welcome them in their own language. Many of them still speak Russian. They don't like to admit it. But at least they were able to communicate with them. Um, they, they secured housing and clothing and food for dozens of refugees. Pastors, former students of Greg, began calling from the war-torn Ukraine looking for help to find safe places for their wives, their children, and their congregants. As time goes on and many Ukrainians find themselves in exile for over a year, Debbie and Greg have helped the refugees to settle into their new country. They organized special events for them. They started a ballet program for the Ukrainian girls. They host Bible studies and language courses and camps. They have helped some some Ukrainian pastors establish Ukrainian congregations for their refugees. Debbie and Greg sit with the women and children, and they pray with them, and they cry with them. And none of us wonder, who knows? Maybe God placed them in Prague for such a time as this. It is clear to all who know them that God shaped their very lives for this very moment in time and in this place. God is at work to save and care for his people. God has a plan to save his people, and Mordecai reminded Esther that just maybe this was the very moment that God raised her up for. So how did Esther respond to this? It was a twofold response. Her first response brings us to the second point of the text. Fasting prepares our hearts for God's work. So let me read the first part of her response in verse 15 of our text. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and and my young women will also fast as you do. As we read this text, we probably find ourselves just kind of compelled. We hear the word fasting, and we want to add the word and prayer. All the way throughout scriptures, those two go together, fasting and prayer, but it's not there. It's like that little tune that you may be familiar with. Uh, Shave and a haircut, two bits. Now, the generation before me knows exactly what I'm talking about. My generation might think it's funny. Y'all are kind of looking at me like, what's he doing? So let me try this. You might know, recognize the rhythm. There you go. So you got that one. So if somebody's knocking on your door and they go, you're just 
sitting there twitching, waiting for the rest of it to land. And if it doesn't, you do it yourself. So it is when we see fasting in the book of Esther, we say fasting and prayer. We, it's, it always goes together. So the question is, why, why does uh, the, the, the narrator not include these obvious references to God um, in the text? For some reason, the author of the book of Esther left out any usual references to God from the story. God and faith are never explicitly mentioned in the story of Esther. However, the author of this story left us breadcrumbs, like Hensel and Gretel left breadcrumbs to find their way home. In our case, the author left us breadcrumbs that point us to God's work throughout the scriptures. Breadcrumbs that point to God's providence, Breadcrumbs that point to God's people remembering his promises and remembering his commandments. This is one of those moments. The Jews, when faced with absolute annihilation, responded with what comes natural to them, fasting, and the breadcrumbs want us to include, and prayer. Now, initially, Queen Esther was oblivious to what was going on in the, entire, in the, in the empire. Up until this point, Esther did not reveal that she was a Jew. She was married to the Gentile king. She lived among Gentiles from all corners of the empire. She did not follow Jewish law necessarily. Being Jewish was not at the forefront of her lifestyle. She didn't necessarily identify with the Jews in the empire. She was comfortable in the palace. She was isolated from other Jews. In fact, she was so isolated from what was going on in the empire that she wasn't even aware that the decree had been stated that all Jews should be killed. She wasn't even aware that the Jews in the capital were in mourning at this, at this time. We, saw that, and we, we see that in verse um, 3 of chapter 4. Let me just read that. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and prayer and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When she did learn of the plight of her people, she stood up. She became fearless and determined. She decided now is the time to identify with her people. She called for all the Jews in Susa to fast and pray for her for three days and three nights. It was above and beyond the typical one-day fast or the three days from sunup to sundown. It was day and night. The very lives of the Jews were at stake here. And as a community, they paused and they fasted in hopes that salvation will come to them. Through their fasting, they prepared their hearts for God's work. I don't know what your tradition is with fasting, some churches build it into their monthly or annual rhythms. Other churches never even mention it. Fasting can have a number of different underlying components to it. Fasting can be done individually or within community as a church body, as the Jews did in Susa. Fasting can be an act of contrition. Fasting can be done as part of repentance. Fasting can help us to step away from food and water to help us shift our focus from the spiritual, from the physical to the spiritual. Fasting can help us to keep our focus on God as we approach him and appeal to him. In other words, fasting can help prepare our hearts for God's work in our lives in the life of the church. I'm no expert in fasting, 
but the scriptures do hold, us, hold it as an example of spiritual discipline. Even Jesus, our Savior, practiced this discipline. He endured an, enti- an extreme 40-day fast in the wilderness before he began his earthly ministry. It was him preparing his heart for God's work, for his ministry. If we follow Jesus Christ, then we should consider this discipline of fasting on occasion. We don't even need to wait until our worlds completely are destroyed, but we can do this as a regular discipline to enter into God's presence, to be more mindful of him. When Esther determined to follow Mordecai's request, the first thing she did was to identify with her people and to prepare for what God might do. And she called her people to fast. The second thing that Queen Esther said in her response to Mordecai brings us to our third point. God works de- work, God's work demands sacrifice from us. We are all called to self-sacrificial love for the salvation of others. Esther's response in verse 16 of our text. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Esther was fully aware that this was a life or death situation for her, but she was willing to face death for the chance that she might help save God's people. Esther became the mediator for the Jewish people, for her people. She risked her life that her people might be saved from annihilation, from genocide. Esther quickly identified with the Jews for the first time and was willing to lay down her life to save her people. We too identify with one another as Christians by how we love each other. And sometimes that may require that we lay down our life for one another. We just studied this in our uh, men's Bible study this summer. In 1 John 3.16 we read, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. That may be literal in many countries around the world where there is active persecution. In our country, we're hardly ever called to die to one another uh, for one another's sake, but it it could be simple as dying to our own preferences, in deference to the preference of others, our other believers, brothers and sisters. Jesus himself taught this concept of self-sacrificial dying to oneself. We have that in Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if if he gains the whole world and forfeits the soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? If we are followers of Christ, we can no longer live for ourselves. We are called to live for Christ. We are called to live for the well-being of our brothers and sisters. We are called to live our lives self-sacrificially that others might be saved. As we just sang this earlier this morning, I surrender all. is giving it all up. Esther could have kept quiet. The king did not know she was a Jew, and she might have survived the genocidal decree of Haman. But at what cost? No, she had no real choice. She had to stand with her people. And so Esther became a mediator for her people. She risked her life, spoke out on behalf of her people for the chance that her people might live. 
Jesus, is our perfect mediator. He was the Son of God who became fully human, actually did give up his life on the cross so that we might live. Not just live here in exile on earth for a few more days or years like Esther, but to those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, Christ becomes our Savior. He paid the price of our sin with his very life that we might have eternal life and we are invited to a feast at his heavenly table sitting in the very presence of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus, our perfect mediator, gave up his life that we might live. So, how does the story end with Esther? I gotta do three or four chapters in two seconds here. (laughs) In short, the king does not have Queen Esther hanged as we read in chapter 5. Queen Esther invited the king and Haman to two feasts in in as many nights. So the, the, the night between the two feasts, the king suffered from insomnia and ordered his servants to bring his book of chronicles, which we mentioned before, and read them to him. As fate would have it, or another breadcrumb for us that points to God's providence in this story, the king was reminded about Mordecai's bravery when he warned the king about the plot to kill him. The next day, during the second feast, Esther revealed that Haman was the one who sent out a decree to kill her people, all the Jews in the empire. The king was outraged and had Haman hanged. Mordecai was raised up in statue and authority. Queen Esther was given all the power and the authority that formerly belonged to Haman, and she practically ruled on behalf of the king. Queen Esther saved the Jews. The book of Esther doesn't mention God or faith explicitly. It is as if God is not there. But in reality, the narrative leaves us many breadcrumbs that point us to the presence of God in the life of Esther and the Jews and shows us that God was very much at work saving his people during Esther's reign. Church, if your heart is heavy and you feel that God has abandoned you and that he's not there, that he's too silent, be encouraged. God does not abandon his people. He is not absent. Like the story of Esther shows us, he may be hidden for a time, but he is not absent. God is at work. We sang those lyrics just a couple of weeks ago. It said, even when I don't see you working, you never stop working. God is steadfast in his love, and he will always outlast you with his love and patience. Continue to seek God. Continue feeding on his word. Continue to remain in the fellowship with the church body. Continue to look for the breadcrumbs in your life that are evidence that God is still at work in your life. The very fact that you woke up this very morning is evidence of God's work in your life at its most minimum. The fact that you are here in the presence of your fellow believers singing his praises, hearing his word preach, giving and and receiving encouragement from your brothers and sisters in this community are all breadcrumbs pointing you to God, God's all-powerful loving work to save his people and to care for you personally. Our text also calls us to consider fasting for a time. Use that time to enter God's presence in humble submission with a contrite heart confessing your sins. Take a pause from the worldly things, from the physical, and shift your focus to the spiritual. Enter the presence of God and rest and know that he 
is God. Most of all, know that you have a mediator that's far greater than Esther, than Esther was for her people. She risked her life for their salvation, but we have a mediator in Jesus Christ who actually gave up his life on our behalf that we might be saved from sin and death. Jesus is our perfect mediator. The life that Jesus has to offer is eternal life. Jesus invites us into his perfect kingdom where he reigns with absolute justice and perfect love. But he also asks that you surrender all, that you sacrifice yourself, that you might be fully abandoned to Christ, that you might take part in his work to save others, that they might participate in the eternal feast with Christ at his banquet. God has not abandoned us. He might be hidden for a time, but he is steadfast in his pursuit of you with his perfect love. God is at work. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are steadfast in your love towards us and that you continue to pursue us. Even those times when we feel that you are not there, you are still there. You are still at work. You are still loving us. You are still saving your people. And for this, we thank you. May we go into this week knowing your love. If we need to take a break and fast and reflect, may we do so that we can tie our hearts back to you. May you be glorified throughout all of our actions this week. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Jim, for that.